Welcome back to What in the World. This is Ryan, joined by Andre. Uh, Andre, what have you been doing to kind of, you know, let the time go by? I mean, at least for me, I spend my time playing a little bit of uh, Call of Duty uh, Warzone with some of my friends to kind of distract ourselves from our, our legal coursework. But are you a video gamer? I'm actually, I don't know if I've, we've ever talked about this. Yes, we have, Ryan. We talked about it last week. Yeah, I do own an Xbox Series S. It took me about a month to procure that. And I've been playing Fallout 4, actually. It's on Xbox Game Pass, which is like the Netflix of Xboxes. Uh, you only pay 15 bucks a month. But Fallout 4, it's a, it's a great game. It's sort of scary, though, when you think about the backstory. Basically, it's you're 200 years after nuclear war between the United States and China. And the U.S. and China went to war because of resource shortages. Resource shortages. So think about that. Scarcity and resources as we have a changing environment. The two great nuclear-clad powers, the U.S. and China, going to war and then no countries exist because everyone's been blown up except for a few humans. And you have mutants, you have zombies, you have all of that stuff. And uh, it's it's sort of scary when you think about it. But, you know, Ryan, it, it took me a long time to actually get that Xbox so I could play the game. And I think one of the reasons is, is that we are sort of seeing a lot of supply chain issues right now. Ryan, I mean... I'm just about 100 miles south of Los Angeles, and there are around maybe half a million, probably, uh, shipping containers on ships that are unable to get into the Los Angeles port. Can you believe that? That's crazy. I mean, what does this have to do with COVID? Is this a kind of a consequence of COVID? So, I mean, it's a consequence of many things, right? So, like, I mean, a lot of these ship shipments are coming from Asia, and uh, we've seen, for example, uh, you know, factory shutdowns in Asia that was due to the pandemic. We've seen the surge in the Delta variant. Uh, many countries in Southeast and East Asia have not yet had the proper access to vaccines like we've been fortunate in this country to get. Uh, there has been shortages of shipping containers themselves. And in this country, we also have shortages of uh, truck drivers, another sort of consequence of the pandemic. So we're seeing all of these things sort of, you know, really play into these uh, the inability for these shipments to get into port it's sort of a bottleneck effect for many of these uh, supply chains that's affecting a lot of retail uh, i mean retailers in the united states for example ryan have you been trying to buy waffles lately from kellogg's like maybe french toast or pancakes anything with the kellogg's brand like egos i i do love egos andre um I'm, i i do have you been able to find them in the stores um no, actually. And I, I'd never actually thought about it, but I, I assume you have a reasoning behind that. Yeah. So my sister loves French toast. So my mother always tells me to go to our local Vons or grocery store here in San Diego to get French toast. There's no French toast. There was no French toast when I went about two weeks ago. And then last week I went to the freezer. There was no Kellogg's products uh, whatsoever. And you might have heard there's a little bit of a strike going on with some workers here. But the political turmoil in South Africa affected one of the Kellogg's factories. And then a week-long, I think, COVID shutdown with a factory in Malaysia also contributed to these supply chain uh, issues with Kellogg's. And now they're having like a six to nine-month shortage of Kellogg's products. I mean, the supply chain issues are just crazy. Uh, 
And I mean, a lot of people are, you know, they're going to have to start doing their holiday shopping pretty soon. And I think another consequence of the supply chain stuff is this rise in prices that we're currently seeing. I mean, gas has gone up by a lot. And I think the OPEC countries have uh, sort of conspired to make gas go up as well. But then you're just seeing this significant inflation. Some are calling it stagflation, like we've seen in the 1970s. But things are simply more expensive than they, they were before. Like meat is more expensive. Regular groceries are more expensive. It's all more expensive right now in the United States. And a lot of that is due to what's happening around the world, in addition to perhaps some economic policies that are happening at home as well. Uh, we don't know yet if the, I mean, I'm not necessarily sure, I'm not an economist, if the inflation is transitionary with the return to, you know, a, an econ- our normal sort of economic functioning or if it's due to all of these factors altogether. But uh, it's not good news for the president of the United States, Joe Biden. No, especially considering the new polling that came out, Andre, uh, from Quinnipiac, saying that it's at 38% approval rating. 38%. That's the lowest of his presidency. That's like pretty low for your first year as president. Uh, Keep in mind, like August was hellish. Uh, I mean, you saw the Delta variant really come back in the United States. You saw the Delta variant really uptick elsewhere, as we've sort of talked about before. I was in Sri Lanka during the massive Delta surge uh, that was taking place there. But you saw the Delta variant. You saw the drawdown from Afghanistan that was relentlessly covered in the media, even though we forgot about that war for 10 years. Uh, Sadly, I might add. And just, I think also the AUKUS deal sort of contributed to some of the narratives that, you know, Biden's foreign policy is quote unquote incompetent, that some on the right have sort of played up. And then this inflation, the economy, uh, you know, the workforce participation rate is not the best. Uh, We're not seeing as many people take as many jobs, but also jobs aren't necessarily as high paying as, you know, they could be. And so on. And I, I just think really it's the inflation that's going to be like killing his approval. I mean, Ryan, what are your thoughts? No, I mean, again, while we're not a, we're not necessarily a domestic politics or policy podcast, but what I will say is that the challenge uh, of the Democrats trying to pass their new infrastructure proposal, as well as the kind of the debt ceiling issue coming to a head, but also likely being kind of kicked off uh, for another month or two, that's also putting pressure. Uh, on on the president and his party as well. And so, yeah, again, it seems like uh, despite Biden, you know, winning the this election, and I would say in a, pretty much by a landslide, uh, the Not country- landslide. I mean, he I mean, he won the, the state. The popular vote was like pretty big. But when yeah. you look at the actual numbers in the swing states, like, I mean, it was very small margins, right? Like it was very small margins yes. in Pennsylvania and in Arizona, and in Georgia, and in so on. But how much of this do you think is due to Afghanistan, or the image, perhaps, of the president painted by the Afghanistan drawdown? It depends on who you ask, right? If you're looking at the, a Republican or those who may not identify themselves as, as Democrats, I would say they are looking to the, the foreign policy failures, and, or no, most likely because the Republican Party is painting the Democratic Party as failing in national security and foreign affairs because they the Republicans see themselves as this party of security. And, and that, I, that is true, that the Republican Party is viewed by more Americans right now as guaranteeing uh, prosperity and security. It just came out this past week. 
the Republican Party is, I think, maybe by about 10 points, edging out the Democrats as a party that can secure security and prosperity. Well, therein lies the fundamental issue for President Biden and the Democratic Party. If they cannot change that narrative, the more challenges in the foreign policy policy arena, the greater the Republicans will of a sway they'll have as we approach uh, the, the upcoming elections in 2022 and looking to, to even 2024. I mean, Ryan, when you look at what happened in August, we saw a case like a just sort of a load of foreign policy issues come to a head and come home, really. Uh, Afghanistan, obviously, foremost at the, for, at the forefront of the news. Uh, we saw the migration crisis that was the result of the presidential assassination in Haiti. In addition to the earthquake in Haiti, a lot of Haitian migrants are were at the border and are still at the border, I believe. Uh, you saw the AUKUS deal where France has expressed their deep displeasure, which became fodder for many political pundits who were looking for something to criticize. A lot of foreign policy stuff, actually. Yeah, I, I, yes. I, I absolutely think that's the case when you're looking at either independents or Republicans. But I think with Democrats, the, the bottom line comes to passing the Democratic agenda. Uh, again, when it's your own party making certain kind of missteps, they're more forgiving than the other party. And so... Uh, the foreign policy. It's the independence you had to be worried about. Yes, exactly. And there are, as we know, a considerable amount of them. Um, and as we approach uh, election season once again, uh, it could be problematic. And we'll see what what the actual results of of these midterms elections are. But I I I I would not be surprised if the Republicans did quite well. I mean, typically during midterms, right, the opposite party always does well. You had the, quote unquote, the blue wave in 2018, you had the red wave in 2014. So automatically, you would assume that the red wave would occur in 2022. But, uh, it might be a bit bigger, dependent on the president's fortunes. Obviously, it's like less than a year into this presidency, so who knows? Ronald Reagan, interestingly, had the same issue. He was uh, quite unpopular, actually, during the first term, at, at times during the first term. Uh, in about 1982, they were still dealing with this massive recession. But interestingly, in, interestingly, in 1983, Ryan, you had the Beirut bombings that killed about, I think, 250 of our Marines. And you really saw a rally around the flag sort of moment there. And I don't think those moments exist right now. We saw the deaths of our personnel in Afghanistan. Certainly didn't happen. It painted a worser picture of the president than he would have hoped for. And uh, I mean, you know, these sort of lows in popularity during the first term aren't normal, but it's just come earlier in Biden's term. And who knows if he'll be able to, you know, claw himself out of it. Absolutely. And again, I think as we... As we approach other challenges, such as the the China challenge, and again, we're we're seeing a lot. China, we're yeah. seeing a lot of rhetoric and plans coming out of of the current uh, administration as they're trying to address China. And any sort of action will lead to some sort of response by the Chinese government. And if it's you know, depending on how it's seen, and depending on what China does in response. Uh, that could very well create another foreign policy challenge. Again, so challenge after challenge for this administration, it's certainly going to be tested. I mean, you were talking, we were talking a bit earlier before we started recording. Ryan, you were mentioning something about great power competition and strategic competition. Yeah. So the Department of Defense is changing rhetoric uh, literally across the entire Pentagon, saying that we're, we're not going to be referring to it as great power competition but we're looking to call it strategic competition. It's it's basically being reported, and the DOD spokesperson uh, said this, uh, basically that strategic competi- competition with China or any other nation is more aligned with the thinking of the administration. 
Uh, but I, I really think it, you know, it's not really any other nation. Strategic competition is looking at China in particular. I, I don't think there's any kind of if, ands, or buts about that as, as we're moving away from the focus on the global war on terror and turning our eyes directly towards China. Well, I feel like great power competition carries this weight, you know, around the words, right? Like you're thinking of like cold, the Cold War style of rhetoric, the great powers are competing against each other. Whereas with strategic competition, I feel like that's more like softer, right? Like you can talk a bit about like, you know, okay, like we're competing economically to get investments and invest in certain countries and so on. But Ryan, did you hear about I mean, in in lieu of this, did you hear about the Biden G virtual summit that's supposed to happen? It's yeah. It seems like the the Biden administration is working with uh, the the Chinese government to come to some sort of virtual arrangement. I know that the you know down the line they're working out all the details of it. Uh, but this is very important. Dialogues between world leaders always lead to at least something at the end of the day, whether positive or negative. Um, it's 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 very difficult to compete in an effective way, or at least come to some sort of agreement if you're not talking to one another. And the relationships uh, at the presidential level is always important. You know, you can say whatever you will about President Trump's, you know, antics and tactics, um, but FaceTime with world leaders, albeit even virtually, uh, is crucial to diplomacy and coming to uh, cooperation and moving away from areas of contention. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, Ryan, I talked about Fallout 4 earlier. I really would not want to live through a US-China war. No. <laughs> not that, you know, we're going to go to war. But I mean, obviously, we talk about these flashpoint uh, areas, right? Like Taiwan. Well, something happened in Taiwan, Ryan. What happened? Yeah, so we missed it on last week's edition of What in the World just by, I think, a handful of hours. But China has been and routinely has done this, but even more so recently and at and, and more at a higher frequency is scrambling jets that are then violating uh, Taiwan's airspace. And so Taiwan, of course, has to respond to this. Taiwan does not have the defensive capabilities to actually do something on its own if China were to engage in some sort of offensive measure. But this is signaling at the highest level is sending uh, fighter jets into the airspace, just like it is when they send their carriers or other attack vessels into uh, their territorial waters. Absolutely. And I mean, obviously, the Chinese government is really trying to test the, the metal of the Americans right now, because I mean, Afghanistan, the US leaving Afghanistan and seeing what happened there is really, I mean, perhaps a bad sign to the world that, okay, like maybe America is not necessarily as concrete in its determination or its aspirations and so on. And I mean, we've seen some criticisms of the Biden administration for taking, even adopting perhaps some aspects of, quote unquote, the America first uh, foreign policy of Donald Trump, I think, with the vaccines you were seeing, with vaccine diplomacy. I mean, right, right now, the president said we're going to be the arsenal of vaccines for the world. But I mean, I saw it myself. China was really sending those vaccines uh, to Sri Lanka, to many other developing countries. And I think people are sort of seeing the U.S. continue to recede from the world stage in many ways, uh, in ways that were unexpected of the Biden administration. So I think that's certainly a test. Don't you think so? I, I really do. And at all levels of government right now, and literally in the entire foreign policy community, anyone looking at international affairs right now, it's all about how the U.S. is responding to the perceived threat. And it really is an actual threat. It's a real threat of, of China competition. And so 
You can see it in how the the government is kind of changing itself from internal agency structures to, again, rhetoric. It's all important. And so Beijing knows this. uh, They see it and they are responding in kind. Yeah, absolutely. And I think another thing to keep in mind is that, I mean, Beijing can also see the public opinion polls of how Americans feel on certain foreign policy issues. So, for example, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs, I believe, released a poll in August saying 70% of Americans do not support the war in Afghanistan, as in they want a drawdown to occur before the actual drawdown occurred. So, I mean, you know, God forbid there's a poll that's done on U.S. willingness to go to war over Taiwan. If such a poll was released, I don't know if such a poll had been released, but I mean, that's certainly a sign to the Chinese about any president's particular willingness to go to war over Taiwan or defending Taiwan vis-a-vis security. And the scary part is, Andre, that could very well be an issue that comes up in the in the near future. Absolutely. It's, I think, on everyone's radar who looks at, at Chinese militarization. Uh, so uh, we could very well be having, we, there could be an answer to this question in in time. Speaking of Taiwan, Ryan, you know what they make in Taiwan? Are you going to say egos? No, semiconductors go into our Xboxes and our cars and so on. And also another reason you can't find an Xbox or a PlayStation in stock. And maybe one of the reasons, in fact, why some of our car prices are going sky high. So another linkage to our supply chain issues that we talked about at the top of the hour. But everything's connected, guys. This is why you should care about foreign policy. Yes. Exactly. It, it does matter. There are implications both abroad and at home. Uh, Andre, there's a very interesting story that came out, this this Pandora Papers, which is also kind of in line with, with the Paradise Papers and some of the other kind of leak it, leaks of, of confidential information about where money is being kind of stored around the world. In this case, uh, it's, it was quite damning for a variety of high-level political uh, leaders around the world. And so this this reporting shows the holdings of some leaders, including King Abdullah of Jordan, who has about $100 million in property uh, kind of around the world. We also see that the the Czech prime minister has these offshore investment firms. He purchased a very expensive chateau in France. He's also seeking re-election next week. And interestingly, Russian President Vladimir Putin might very well be linked to the purchase made uh, in Monaco, uh, potentially by his uh, girlfriend or someone he's had a relationship with. And so a, a lot of this is linked to corruption. Uh, these types of leaks are leaked to corruption, how leaders and the quote unquote global elite park their money, hide their money. Apparently, South Dakota is very popular for, for kind of hiding investments. So Ryan, is this stuff illegal or like, what's the big deal? How should we sort of comprehend this? So offshore holdings are not uh, illegal in and of themselves, they can have legitimate purposes, uh, but they, the secretive nature of them can, in many cases, be linked to criminal activity and money laundering. Uh, I would say when you're looking outside of the U.S. to maybe foreign actors, they many of which who could, for example, is Vladimir Putin or someone who has either him or his connections are trying to hide money that is being taken from the Russian people through a variety of means, whether they're in, in the West or other areas, uh, that, is, that would be criminal activity. And so uh, while you, know, you never know on whether something's legitimate or not until you actually look deeper into it, uh, when you're hiding it, 
it, it could very well mean that you're trying to evade something. Will there be like political consequences? Have there already been political consequences for some of the world leaders that have, you know, had their holdings yeah. be discovered? Yeah, so lawmakers around the world, and particularly in the United States, are, are looking for legislation to crack down on, on financial crimes and also the kind of enabling of shielding wealth and the movement of wealth of foreign clients, and particularly how that money moves into the United States. And so there's a group of, of lawmakers in the U.S. that have, are, are trying to propose the quote-unquote Enablers Act. Um, this, again, was in, uh, in response to the release of the, the Pandora Papers. And so... It would essentially require the Treasury Department to establish due diligence laws for the middlemen that kind of deal with the flow of this money, whether it's it's banks or or law firms or accountants. And so there's all this kind of new chatter. And we saw this, and every time there's these leaks or investigations into the kind of the movement of of money for the you know the the world leaders or those who are involved in kind of high finance. Uh, there's always proposals for legislation such as this, but who knows whether or not it'll actually be put into law. Yeah, it's very interesting because, I mean, I was sort of watching uh, what was happening with the Pandora Papers in Sri Lanka, and it sort of dominated the news there because one of the members of the ruling family, who was also a former minister, had a massive art collection that was very, very valuable, that was sort of hidden, uh, you know, stored away somewhere, and that sort of came out through the Pandora Papers. So I think you're going to see a lot of, people across the world uh, pay attention to it. Any Americans who've been implicated in this? Uh, not that I've seen as of yet. I have not poured over the millions of documents, um, but and I, from what is being reported, they have kind of targeted some of the you know very high level world leaders as such as King Abdullah, the, the Czech PM, um, as well as some others. Yeah. Uh, right. And there's another story I sort of want to cover that has to do with CIA. Uh, it seems that as as of late, that many of our informants, many of our agents, in terms of our foreign agents, uh, they are being either captured or killed. It's sort of troubling. I believe uh, Director Burns, William J. Burns, is taking steps to address this. But there's, it's just a concerning trend that we've been seeing. It really is. And so there, there have been calls uh, for the agency to kind of change the way it conducts its clandestine operations. But if you talk to a lot of people, either current or former agency people, they say that human intelligence is always a backbone of, of a great intelligence agency. And so that despite some of the challenges, whether they're you know double agents or uh, informants being killed, at the end of the day, human intelligence is the most effective way to conduct espionage and to better to ensure that the US is fully aware of what its adversaries are doing and so despite this this challenge and of course the CIA uh, while you know not really acknowledging it kind of openly admitting to it um, there are there are I mean there is this kind of top secret cable to stations that's been reported from counterintelligence officials that recruits are, are are being lost and that is a huge problem particularly when you're looking that it's primarily coming from Russia, China, Iran, and Pakistan, uh, and that and those are among some of the greatest, um, greatest kind of. I'm not going to say adversaries because Pakistan is not an adversary per se, but it does act in contravention to U.S. interests a lot of the time. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, we spent so much time, you know, really engaging in human intelligence in the Middle East with Afghanistan, with Iraq, and so on, and now. The focus is once again on China, on Russia, and those other countries that you had mentioned. And I mean, 
the loss of more agents is going to make the CIA's job much harder, not just in terms of the resources it's currently losing, but the potential loss of future resources, future agents, future people who can help uh, gather this intelligence and you know keep us at the forefront of our own national security challenges. So it's a very scary thing. It's a very concerning thing. And I mean, of course, the double agent and the triple agent uh, situation is always just so concerning and something we had to keep our mind on. Without a doubt. Andre, I'm going to plug one more story into today's episode. It concerns the European Union and democratic backsliding. We typically talk about Hungary when we talk about democratic backsliding, but Poland is a, is a great close second. Uh, and so the Constitutional Court on Thursday ruled that European Union law is subservient to the Constitution of Poland, which is in direct contravention to EU law. EU law explicitly states that it is supreme over all national law, even the Constitution. And so really, this is a blow to the European Union. And it it, it really does threaten to kind of dissolve the, the what keeps the European Union itself, and that is that the Union is above all. And so the European Commission issued a blistering statement saying that it raises serious concerns in relation to the the primacy of EU law and that the the European Commission, the European Union will pursue all uh, remedies that it can. This will very well go into the European Court of Justice. And so President of Poland spoke to Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson went to Hungary as well to talk to Viktor Orban, really praising them as, you know, beautiful, lovely conservatives. Uh, you're also sort of seeing, right, this romanticization of these democratic backsliders by many on, say, let's say the Trumpian end of conservatism. Mike Pence delivered a speech maybe a week or two ago in Hungary where he sort of praised Hungary's abortion laws and sort of paid tribute to Viktor Orban. There's the potential, at least according to the New York Times, that the American Conservative Union is planning a version of CPAC in Budapest sometime in 2022. Why are these people normalizing democratic backsliders? Is this what they want? So I, I, that's the, a, a very difficult question. And I can only speculate that the, well, I don't know why conservative media likes these autocratic leaders in Europe. I would say the only thing I can see and the only value I can see is that they are upholding quote unquote conservative values many of which are now flying in the face of democratic institutions in these countries. Uh, they are, while they are engaging in maybe what some may see as a conservative policymaking or conservative ideals, they're employing these ideals in very undemocratic ways. And they're completely flying in the face uh, of the will of the people of these countries. And so it is just bewildering to me that it's being supported by a, a significant segment of the media. Yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it's also the populist style that these leaders present the president of Poland, the pre, uh, Viktor Orban in Hungary. It's a populist style, and it's a populist style that Tucker Carlson really feeds off of in his Fox News diatribes. It's a populist style that helped propel Mike Pence into the vice presidency, even though it was his, you know, head honcho was really running the show with regards to that populist style. But still, it's a very concerning trend, normalizing authoritarian trending leaders, a very concerning trend that really scares me. Yeah, 
I couldn't agree more. And so we'll leave it there, Andre. We have reached the 30-minute mark. And so, uh, folks, we have a a fantastic episode coming out on Monday. Um, And as always, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to The Burn Bag. Uh, Please give us your feedback. We're always looking to improve the podcast. Uh, And uh, that's all we got. And we'll see you next week. Thank you. See you, folks.